says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We have come to this place gathered together to see his ways, to hear about the kindness that he shows in all of his works. We have drawn near today to call on him, this God that hears us. We've gathered here to worship. Let's pray as we come before our Father. O gracious Father, we humbly come before you, beseeching you for your holy church. Not just us here, not just the churches in Greenville, not just the churches in the United States. Your church, as she gathers all across this world, we pray that you would be pleased to fill her with all truth and all peace. Lord, we pray that where you see corruption, that you would purify your church. Where you see error, that you would direct your church. Where anything is amiss, we pray that you would reform your church. Where it is right, we pray that you establish it. Where it is in want, we pray that you provide for it. Where it is divided, we pray that you would reunite it. We pray that you would do all of these things for your people, for the sake of him who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us, your people, your church, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And Lord, we pray for those who are sent out to proclaim the gospel. Oh God, you have made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the whole earth. And you sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Father, we ask that you would grant that all men everywhere may seek after you and find you. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and bring the nations into your fold. Lord, give those nations that you have given to your Son as an inheritance and hasten the coming of your kingdom. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, today we pray for those who are in need. You are the God of mercies. And we pray that you would make us, your people, to be servants of your mercy in our city, imitators of you, 
as we show mercy to the needy in our midst. We pray that you would comfort with the grace of your Holy Spirit those who suffer sorrow. There are those, many of those in our church suffering sorrow now. We pray for those who suffer sickness. And we pray for those who are struggling with all kinds of adversity. We lift them up to you, asking you to strengthen them. We pray that you would have mercy upon those to whom death draws near. We pray that you would bring consolation to those in sorrow or mourning. We pray that you would remember those today who suffer persecution for the faith. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us, your people, wisdom and faith needed to be your vessel in all these works. Father, we pray especially for those in authority. You're a merciful Father in heaven. And Lord, we know that you have ordained the power of those who govern. You have ordained that power for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do well. And so we humbly pray that you would grant wisdom to your servants. Those who serve locally, those who serve in the states, those who serve at the federal level, Lord, we just pray that you would grant wisdom to govern in true righteousness and justice. Lord, we come before you to worship you. We lift up our praises to you as your people through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Ruth chapter 2, verse 17 to 23. As you turn there, just to remind you, Ruth has been provided bread by Yahweh through Boaz. Remember, He's provided safety. He's provided security. He's provided a place to call home. Remember, he says, my daughter. And then he provides this overabundance. Remember, not, not just pull some of those sheaves out for her. Let her just grab all of it. And don't rebuke her. He gave her bread, roasted grain, wine, I mean, there's, there's big biblical theological stuff going on with what he's provided for her in those things. She's been satisfied by God. And now she returns to Naomi. And what we find is that this blessing that she has received runs deeper and farther than either they or us could have imagined. In fact, we should be really glad about what's happening now. In this chapter, and then as we, at the end of this chapter, and as we move forward. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Verse 17 to 23 
Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out, uh, beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her uh, what food she had left over after being satisfied. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I'd worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, uh, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young men of Boaz, I mean, young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We pray that you would strengthen our faith today, trusting you to do what you said you would do through this word, that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would shape us and conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would do that for us, your people here, and as your word is proclaimed throughout your church. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So stories are funny. Story is a funny thing. I mean, we hear stories so often that it's just sort of the air we breathe. We forget how powerful stories can be. It's fascinating how they resonate with us. You almost automatically find yourself connecting to somebody in a story. It's easy. I mean, you just sort of drift off. Think about in the story that we've seen so far. Perhaps you've seen yourself in Elimelech. Remember, that's Naomi's husband. Perhaps you've seen yourself in Melon. Remember, his name means frail. Or perhaps you've seen yourself in Kilion. That's the other son of Naomi. Remember, his name means sick. Maybe you see yourself in the servants, right? Boaz's servants, his servants, the women, the servants, the men out there. Maybe you see yourself in the reapers, right? the people who are out there working in the field. 
Maybe you see yourself in the guy that was in charge of the reapers. Remember that guy? Boaz comes up. What's up? Who's that? That guy managing everything. Maybe you see yourself as Boaz. Although that's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, it would be a little presumptuous of me to go, yes, I am Boaz. Well, I mean, but I asked you to do that last week to see how what we see in him is this image of what the people of God are supposed to be. Maybe you see yourself in Ruth, the foreigner, the outsider. Hope so. Remember Naomi? Remember her? It's been a while since we talked about Naomi. Back in chapter 1. Naomi, bitter and empty. Naomi, she's at the end of chapter 1, she's the one that said, The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. In other words, the Lord has abandoned me. Naomi, that woman struggling with her faith. You may have been thinking over the last couple of weeks, can we go back to her? Because I think she's me. Maybe you've been wondering, what is, what's going to happen to her? Remember, Ruth, she's been out there getting stuff done, pulling in, you know, getting all kinds of stuff, eating, partying. Where's Naomi? Well, God meets her today. We've already seen that, but I want you to really see it. God meets her today. God shows Naomi and he shows us how he strengthens faith. How he renews faith. He shows Naomi and he shows us that he is not one who abandons. He shows Naomi and he shows us that he's one who redeems. So let's pick up in 17. And there's, this is sort of like, you can take this as an act, right? These are, I mean, this is probably like act four, right? We've changed scenes. Ruth, and remember, she's coming out of the field. She's been gleaning. 17 says, she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city, Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Here we see Yahweh showing that he does not abandon. By doing something for Naomi right here in the present. Ruth has received blessings and now she becomes this sort of 
mediator of those blessings of Yahweh. She, remember all of that food that she had to eat, she was eating roasted grain and you know, morsels, bread, and she had all this stuff. She'd, you know, she took a take-home plate and she brought it back to Naomi. But it was even better than that is she had an ephah of barley. No. Nobody's excited about an ephah. Come on. You know what? I, you know how much an ephah is. An ephah is about fifty pounds. Now, how about that? Are you a little impressed now? Are you a little impressed that Ruth carried that back to the city? There won't be enough food forever, but it will be enough food for a while. That's huge. And Ruth is like, and guess what else I got? A doggy bag. Right? I mean, she's just bursting with abundance. And Naomi's response, you know, you know what the difference in Naomi, we see somebody different than we saw in chapter 1. Her response is a bit different. Look at verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi asks because she knows this is an unusual haul. This is a lot. What on earth did you get into? This Naomi who was unable to see the blessing of God before, unable to see what he had given to her in Ruth, the Naomi they only saw emptiness, now can't help but see more. Much more. you start to see this turn in her faith. Something's changing for her. She is seeing what she could not see before. Or the Lord is revealing to her what she could not see before. And that faith is seen in the pronouncement of the blessing. She doesn't know who this person is, but she recognizes that it was significant that he noticed Ruth. It's already good news. This guy noticed her, but it gets better. Look at verse 19. And this is funny. This verse is interesting because the writer really slows down the action. And we, we could miss this because you and I know already what's going on. We know where Ruth was. Right? Just, sort of, just sort of take stock of this for a second. Just enjoy being in the know. This is sort of like knowing that somebody is going to have a surprise birthday party. Right? 
or you know that this person is about to get a gift that they have been longing for, that they, and you're just, you're just waiting with bated breath for them to discover what this is. That's, that's what you and I are. We're sitting around waiting for Naomi to unwrap this present. And it's almost like this excruciating. Let's, let, me, let me read it, kind of slow it down. She asked, who is this guy that took notice of you? And then, she, and then this is the what, what this, is, uh, this is Ruth. So she, Ruth, told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked. You see that? So the narrator goes, so Ruth tells her mother-in-law the man that she worked with, with whom she worked with. And then... He has Ruth say the same thing. The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Now, Ruth doesn't know that this is amazing. I mean, we know that this is going to be amazing. Interestingly enough, Ruth doesn't know just how amazing this is. Naomi didn't know how amazing it was until Ruth just told her who the guy was, Boaz. On hearing this, she erupts in another blessing, right? And here's where we get to sort of the meat of this thing, the significance. Don't miss this. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now listen carefully. She blesses Boaz again, this time blessing the guy whose name she knows. She commends him to Yahweh. May he be blessed by the Lord. And then there's this little relative clause, right, for you grammar nuts. Whose kindness has not forsaken. The question that we have is, who is the whose? Whose kindness is she talking about? There is perhaps some ambiguity here that's deliberate. You notice the way that the sentence is written. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness. It seems that what, you, what Naomi is saying, or what she's not saying, she's not giving the reason why Boaz is to be commended. Rather, she is describing the God who commends. May he be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, Naomi reveals her faith here. 
The Lord doesn't have his thumb on me. The Lord's not out to get me. He's shown me that he's not forgotten me. He hasn't abandoned me. He hasn't abandoned Ruth, the living. Who's the dead? We might say Naomi, remember? Because, yeah, she sort of might as well be as a widow, right? Coming back to Israel, no husband, no sons. He's not abandoned the dead, her husband and her boys. Why is that significant? Remember, we said this, I touched on this before, but with Elimelech dead and Naomi's boys dead, guess what happens to that family? They might as well be wiped off the face of the earth. That's the significance of all of this for Naomi. Her husband and her sons have literally died, and this family is dying. We'll say this again in just a little bit, but this is where this whole story looks a whole lot like Israel as a whole, especially in the time of Judges. Under, in exile, judgment, dying. Naomi sees that Yahweh isn't going to let that happen. That's what she's seeing. She's seeing Yahweh. Here is the God that brings life out of death. That's the blessing. That is the hope that cue the wind, sails. That is what she needed to see to renew this struggling faith. This God does not abandon. Death is not the final answer. This God brings life. And then she gives the why. That's a central, that's sort of what's behind, what drives all of this. We'll see this. Naomi said to her, this is the rest of verse uh, 19, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, you may or may not have been around these parts a little while to know what that uh, redeemer, that idea is all about. Boaz is one of our redeemers. That's important. The word is goal. That's the Hebrew word. That means he does a few things for families like Naomi's. So here's some things that the redeemer does. So just stay with me on this one because this is a little bit more of a I promise this will pay off. The Redeemer reclaims property lost to the family through hardship. The Redeemer buys back relatives out of servitude 
due to debt. The Redeemer avenges the killing of a clan relative. If you go back and look, I think it's in Numbers, it talks about you know, these cities of refuge where there's an accidental killing. You can go there and the avenger of blood, right? that's the Redeemer, can't get you there. The Redeemer assists relatives in lawsuits. The Redeemer redeems a wife of a deceased relative to raise up his name, right, so it doesn't go out. The Redeemer restores a clan widow. His function has to do with restoration. He restores. He restores to a state of wholeness. He restores well-being. He restores provision and satisfaction. He restores shalom. Right, that really tightly packed Hebrew, Hebrew word. That's what the Redeemer does. And Naomi acknowledges the faithfulness of Yahweh to her in the appearance of this Redeemer. And that's because she sees in what Boaz the Redeemer will do, she sees is what God does in his faithfulness. Everything laid out for the Redeemer to do, everything he stands for, is patterned on Yahweh himself. I want you to get the significance. This, this, is not just, this isn't just a, um, a uh, 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 what's the, uh, convenient role. This is not just a, a purely monetary, financial sort of uh, responsibility that a Redeemer has. It's not just functional it's not pragmatic. What I want you to see is that this Redeemer, Boaz, it's not that Yahweh simply shows grace through Boaz, a convenient figure playing a convenient role. It's that Boaz represents Yahweh in his functioning in this role. Boaz does, as the Redeemer, what Yahweh does. He reveals the saving, redemptive, gracious, merciful, all of that can be sort of subsumed under covenantal character of this God that they serve and you and I serve. The Redeemer does what Yahweh does for his people. All this is grounded, we talked about this before, in a few, few different concepts. We'll take all those things that I said the Redeemer does with property and servitude. Think about this. Right? We get a connection to the Redeemer there and Yahweh. Land equals provision, inheritance, but more than that, it's this visible, tangible reality of this relationship that these people have with God. To lose it 
is to be cut off from him. You get that? So here's the land right here. Yay! You know, here we are. God is present. We're here with him, right? But then, ooh, no, this is good. I go down, right? Only thing would be better if it was dark over here. Yahweh's over there. He's not over here, right? Life, death. Resurrection, death. You get it? That's what's going on. That's the importance of this land. God's goal for his people is obtaining the land. When they're out of the land, and you see this over and over in the story, the goal is to get them back in it. Because the land represents something bigger. Land is vital to who they are. Likewise, slavery, to be in bondage, it's not just to you know, be under the reign of a, of a tyrant, to lose possessions. That is to be under a different master, a different Lord, to be away from God. That's why those two things go together quite often in the Old Testament. Exile is leaving the land, and exile means you're a slave to somebody else. But here's God brought his people out of slavery, out of bondage, particularly in Egypt. And he brings his people out as a son to serve him. Leviticus 25 says, For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold slaves. So you see this loss of land, bondage to slavery, all of that undercuts the very identity of the people of God. So you see why God goes to a lot of effort to redeem them from those two things. What about this whole business of a blood avenger, right? The redeemer, which sounds weird, right? This gual. He will take vengeance on uh, the killing of a clan member. What about that? That seems kind of weird. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says this, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Here, God acts against his enemies, the enemies of his people. He vindicates his people by taking vengeance on their oppressors. That's what God does in this redemption. What about lawsuits? Right? Assist, redeemer assists relatives in a lawsuit. Again, that's not just practical. Listen to this. Yahweh himself stands for his people in the same way. Jeremiah 50, 34. The Redeemer, the Gual, is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause. 
that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. What about this restoration of a wife and restoration of a widow? What about that? And again, this is where the Israelite widow is not just a description of Naomi. I mean, this isn't just cute wordplay, right? If you're part of the people of Israel and you're listening to this book, it is about this lady, Naomi, but you know that this, what, what's happening here, all of the stuff that you're hearing, you say to yourself, wow, that sounds a whole lot like us. If you're an Israelite. So Naomi, this Israelite widow, she is not just an individual. She represents, she is a picture of the people. Listen to these, these descriptions, the way, that, the way that the biblical writers talk about Israel. Lamentations 1.1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Isaiah 54.4 says, Fear not, you will not be put to shame. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more being away from the land, living in the land of, for, of foreigners, in exile under foreign rule, this is described in terms of widowhood. And then listen to verse 5 of Isaiah 54. It gets better. You can't make this stuff up. He says... You, your, the, uh, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Your goal. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Do you see why Naomi represents this wider category, Israel? Her life maps onto theirs. What Yahweh does for Israel, he does for her. Brings back to inheritance, restores that they, she might rejoice and serve him. Just like Ruth, this is, remember what Boaz says about Ruth. She said, why have you noticed me? His answer, because you have sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Just like Ruth, what Naomi is discovering 
is she is under those wings too. That restores her faith. That strengthens her faith. All of that, seeing all of those images of Yahweh, seeing that what that means is that Boaz is a picture of him. Maps on to our experience, mine and yours, that we are a part of that story too. This is where we see that God acts today just like he did then. Just as Yahweh acts for Naomi through Boaz. And then here's this clear picture, right? Here's where you see Boaz representing so clearly Christ. Maybe we could say this. While Boaz could be a great, a great model for a husband, maybe that's not most significantly what he offers. What he offers to you is a picture of your Savior, your Redeemer. What he does for you. At this point, you could ask yourself, do you, do you have this sense that you need one? I mean, Naomi knew she needed one. Didn't she? I mean, she felt it. Every day, it was kind of hard to get away from. It's harder for us because we've got all kinds of little saviors running around for us, don't we? We've got all kinds of little redeemers We've got all kinds of places and people and things that are a hope for us. So sometimes it's harder for us to see, oh, it's so good that we've got a Redeemer. Our God acts for us. Not simply through a person, but as a person, the second person of the Trinity, who's taken on flesh. We've seen the work of Christ all kinds of ways up to this point. We see it most clearly, this Redeemer role here in Adam. And just so you can see the connections. In Adam, you and I got ousted from the garden. We lost the land. Corrupted with sin. Cut off from our husband. Widows. Under another Lord. Satan.
The second Adam redeemed us from both. Christ redeems us from our slavery. You know, this is familiar, Romans 6, 4 through 8. We were buried with, we, we, excuse me, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, how? In newness of life, not death. We know that the old self, Adam, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, Adam, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free. In one sense, our baptism is a declaration of our participation in this death and resurrection of Christ. We are partakers of what he obtained. We who were in Adam were under the tyranny of sin and all that that meant. That's what cut off from God means. It's not just sort of this, this vacuum, vacuous state. I mean, it's a real it's a, under, sin, under sin, under the reign of sin, under death. We've been rescued from that existence. No longer slaves participating in his kingdom. That's what we've been talking about in young adults. Transferred from the old domain into the kingdom of God's Son. We're free. What about the land? Well, we don't have land. We don't. We don't have land divided up among us. We don't have plots of land given to each of our groups. I mean, you might have like a land, you, know, like, you might have land that you live on that's your family land. I'm not saying that. But that's not God's land. Right? Yet through Christ, we do inherit real stuff. Do you know that, right? In Christ, you know what we inherit? The earth. New heavens, new earth. We're not just, you know, they, I mean... I think I've said this before, you know, when Christ comes, we're not like disembodied spirits plucking harps on clouds. You know that, right? Christ's redemption is cosmic. He redeems all of it, everything. Bodies, earth, dirt, trees. This is what Paul says, as Abraham's children through faith in Christ were heirs of the world. This is global. This comes through his resurrection and it's guaranteed. It will come. Their status as the people of God, as children, as part of his household. We also realize all of that. All of that stuff that it meant to Israel. We realize all of those things in Christ. But we're not focused on real estate. We're focused on a person. We're God's children, part of his family. We have his favor. He is ours. We're his. We have an inheritance. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For, uh, one, uh, Ephesians 1.13 and 14 In him... 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is what we have in Christ, our Redeemer. Christ is our blood avenger. Can you stay with me for just two more? Christ is our blood avenger. That sounds odd, right? Because we don't, we don't talk about vengeance. That's, that's mean. Yeah, okay. Listen to this. First Thessalonians, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10. I won't read all of it, just... Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So these folks, they're enduring some kind of uh, oppression and pain under their oppressors. And then he says this in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. That sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 32 that we just read. The judgment that Christ will administer is justice against those who rejected him. A vengeance against suffering, the suffering afflicted by his own. And it's a vindication of those who trusted him. Incidentally, that is what happened when Jesus died. Oppression, right? Injustice, pain. Oppression. And he was vindicated by the Father. Resurrection. Shown to be in the right. What about the restoration of a wife or widow? This is the last one. The church is certainly the bride of Christ. That's you. His Father has given us to his Son... Ephesians 5, and this is familiar to many of you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Paul goes on to say, yeah, this is about husbands and wives, but really this is the bigger mystery about Christ and the church. This is what Christ has done for you. He is 
your husband. We'll see more about this in the next chapter and the last. This husband idea. But it's worth noting now, as the Redeemer, He's taken you as His bride. Redeemed you. It works for your growth and your maturity. Let me end with Ruth again, coming back to the last few verses of chapter 2. Verse 121 says, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted or reproached. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Commenting on, one, on this passage, one writer, I think, captures the implication of it. Especially in light of all that we've seen this morning, and I can't say it any better than this. Boaz has shown Ruth that he will provide. Naomi's instructions in, in, in chapter 2, verse 22 are not only practical, but intended to remind Ruth of the safest and most productive option before her. If Ruth were to think, I wonder if I'm wearing out my welcome. Maybe I should go to another part of the field. It would end up insulting Boaz, and it would show him that she does not trust him. There's a lesson in this for us as well. We are to trust Christ, the greater Boaz, to provide our daily bread. We should not look to other fields as it were. After all, after all that Christ has done for us, how dare we go elsewhere? We need to keep looking to him. We need to stay in his field, working and trusting People of God, Christ is your Redeemer. Hold fast to Him. There is no other. There is no better. There is none that's worthy. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for this picture of your son that you show us in your word. And we ask that you would grant that we would apprehend how deep and how wide and how far your grace and your mercy and your love extend in Christ. Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the prospect of what we're seeing as Naomi is. I pray that you, Father, would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would strengthen our faith and that you would grant, you would grant to us hope that we would love you. In Christ's name, amen.
So if you'll take your Lord's Supper packet there. As we take this supper, we look to Christ, our Redeemer, and all that he has given to us. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that, excuse me, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. Take and drink. Can we thank you, Father, for the gifts that you have given us, these tangible things that we can put our hands on, that we can smell, that we can taste. And as we partake, we know that you are confirming to us and affirming your covenantal promises, that we are yours and you are ours, and all that that redemption means. We are your people, and you have and do and will pour out your grace and mercy and love. Strengthen us by these gifts. In Christ's name, amen.